I invite you to turn with me again, this time in your copy of God's Word to the New Testament. We are in the book of Matthew this morning. You can find our text on page 814 if you're using one of the pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Our passage is Matthew 9, verses 9 down through verse 17. As we go through Matthew, we see in this section that Jesus, as he travels about these early chapters in his ministry... He is both performing miracles as well as teaching his disciples. And the theme, really, in chapters 8 and 9 of his teaching is following him. It's a theme of discipleship. He tells different accounts and different interactions to to make that point, but he's showing us who he is in his miracles, and he's telling us what it looks like to follow him in his teaching. So last week, we saw three different miracles. He stills the seas. He casts out the demons. He heals the paralytic man to point to the fact that he heals the man's sins. Same thing this morning. He will point to two different topics around eating with people at the table. And those two topics will show us something deeper about what it is to follow Jesus, what it is to eat at the king's table. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew 9, verse 9 through verse 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, as we come to this word, as we come to these accounts, we ask that you show us a clearer picture of what it means to follow you. I pray not for the righteous this morning, but for sinners here, for people like me, who are in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus, and to learn what it means that you desire mercy and not sacrifice. Teach us that this day, that we might follow you with all of who we are. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, my family went out to eat. We went to a a very large restaurant, and on the way to our table, we were led by the host, and it was crowded. 
The table was at the other end of the restaurant, and we went through sort of weaving and bobbing around all the tables, around all the other waiters, around all the other people to finally arrive at the other end of the restaurant at our table. It felt like we were going through a maze right, at a restaurant we'd never been before, and we were sort of playing this elaborate game of follow the leader to finally end up uh, at our table, to pi- finally be led to where we would go to eat. And as Parents often say to their children when you're going somewhere, right, look at me, follow me. Well, I didn't know where I was going. Uh, My eyes were set on the host, the one leading me to the table. That's our simple picture this morning is that we follow the host to get to the feast. We follow the host to get to the feast in our text Today, And I'll reverse that and and put a a command on that a bit and say to you, both the calling and the promise of these verses is that all who follow the king, the king is the host, all who follow the king are welcome to his feast. All who follow the king are welcome to his feast. There's two themes that are interrelated in these accounts. Uh, this morning. The first is the theme of discipleship or the call of discipleship. We see it there, the first words of Jesus in our section where he speaks to Matthew. Matthew is the author of the gospel according to Matthew. He speaks to Matthew, now follow me. So in some ways, this is Matthew telling us how he finally got involved in the ministry of Jesus, right? This is his own uh, autobiography, about what happened to him, where he was, what he was doing when Jesus called him. It parallels somewhat to the call back in chapter 2 to the four guys who were out fishing. And Jesus called them to follow him. And something we saw then, we need to see today, is that this call in some ways is very particular to the apostles. It is an apostolic call. We are, if your job is working in a toll booth, as that appeared to be Matthew's job, The call that you hear this morning is not for you to quit your job and go and follow Jesus. Please don't hear me saying that. (laughs) No, Lord willing, you can follow Jesus in your current job. But even though this is a unique call, there are implications in what Jesus calls his apostles to do, his disciples to do, his followers to do, that teaches us about our own discipleship. That shows us a picture, somewhat, if not perfect, somewhat dimly, of how we are to follow him. That's our first theme then, is the call of discipleship. Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew shows us what it is to follow him, not as an apostle, but simply as a child of God. Where does Jesus take Matthew? First step in following him. He takes him to the table. (laughs) He takes him to a meal. And that's where the the, the, the stories, the accounts in our passage take place. That's our second theme is this theme of sharing a meal together. You notice that both of these questions arise at the table and they're not merely circumstantial dinner conversation, right? No, there's something about the way that Jesus is eating, who he's eating, who he's eating with, excuse me, and what he's eating, sorry, who he's eating with and what he's eating that is unique that teaches us something about discipleship. You know it is significant when we find in the Gospels and throughout the Bible a meal. A meal is a sign of intimacy. To share a meal with someone isn't just 
to receive physical nutrients into our bodies just to fuel up at the gas station and keep moving. No, it's something significant, something relational, spiritual, we might even say, in the sharing of a meal. So as we go through these verses, I want you to, to think about that. I want you to invite you to think about the role that hospitality plays in evangelism and discipleship. That's what's going on here for Jesus. What role does table fellowship, what role does having someone at your table in your home, what does, role does that play in evangelism and discipleship? Or put it the other way around, what role has that played in your life and when you've been invited into somebody else, to their home, to eat at their table? What we have this morning is one meal. It's one meal. There are two groups of people watching this meal, not eating it. And they each have a big question about what's going on here. So I want us to see our outline this morning are two big questions for Jesus about the meal. The first question, why do you eat with sinners instead of the righteous? Why are you eating with sinners, Jesus? Aren't you supposed to be eating with the righteous? We see this in verses 10 down through verse 13. What's going on here? Jesus called Matthew. Matthew has risen into verse 9 and followed Jesus. He's joined with some of the other apostles. Although he's not a fisherman like them, he's a despised tax collector. He's at work. He's probably literally in a customs house. He's in a toll booth when Jesus calls him to come and follow. And Matthew rises and follows Jesus. And Jesus immediately takes him. Verse 10 tells us, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. So he takes it to somebody's house. What's fascinating here, Matthew doesn't tell us. I don't quite know why he doesn't tell us, but it's his own house. Luke tells us they're in Matthew's house. When Luke uses this, writes this in chapter 5, he uses the name Levi, same guy. He says it's two different names. So Jesus calls Matthew, takes him to the table at Matthew's own house. Sort of fascinating. Jesus is acting as the host of this meal, even though it's in uh, Matthew's home. Who's there? Well, Matthew's friends. <laughs> Who are tax collectors friends with? Other tax collectors, right? They're his co-workers. He's invited them to come to the house with them. And the, the sinners come. We'll come back to that in just a second. And the Pharisees, who are sort of following Jesus, not in the type of following that we want to be following Jesus. They're sort of orbiting around him, sort of wanting to see what he does, catch him up in a, in a conundrum, in a lie, in an inconsistency. They are following him around. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, Matthew kind of downplays this when Luke tells us the story. He says that they're actually grumbling. You can imagine, of course, this is, this is accusatory. They're not saying, oh, we just have a, an innocent question for you, Jesus. Of course not. This is grumbling. This is, they are uh, offended that Jesus is eating with, 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 I'm sorry, with tax collectors and sinners. What is so wrong with tax collectors? Well, do you like tax collectors? Let me put it that way. <laughs> do you like it when you get something from the IRS in the mail? Of course you don't. Uh, they, they come in, they take some of your money. Even worse than that, in that day, many of the tax collectors were susceptible to corruption, right? They would take more than they were owed. They would take too much uh, for themselves. The Jewish people 
even more than this, saw Jewish tax collectors as traitors. It's the Roman government that's collecting tax from the Jewish people. And so they're looking at the tax collectors like they are just working for the man who is oppressing them. They don't like that. But worst of all about tax collectors is they don't only, from the Jewish perspective, they don't only collect taxes from fellow Jewish men and women. They collect taxes from Gentiles. You know what that means? They actually go in Gentiles' houses. They might actually touch a Gentile. So they're corrupt. They're traitors. Worst of all, they're unclean. Jesus' first step of discipleship goes into a man's house who's unclean. You know who else is unclean? The phrase they use, the more generic phrase here for sinners. Sinners is a bigger circle than just tax collectors. We could put tax collectors in that day in that category of sinners. What do the Pharisees mean by sinners? Well, they pretty much mean people not like them. They pretty much mean, number one, common Jewish people who don't follow all the rules. Now, that kind of drives them crazy. Add to that list, not only people that don't follow every little ceremonial rule, add to that list immoral people, unethical people, people with glaring moral sins in their life. Add to that list heretics, those who deny the existence and the truth about God. And even worse, worse of all, on the list of sinners are Gentiles because they're unclean. So here is a table full of unclean people. Have you ever eaten with somebody that you know didn't wash your hands before they sat down? And they're reaching into that same bread basket as you. And you're just grossed out by what's going on. This is even worse. From a Jewish perspective, this is ritual, uncleanness. And here's Jesus, the Messiah of the people of God. And he's eating at a filthy table with filthy sinners. It's not just that the Pharisees are judgy people. <laughs> they sort of are. But they have learned that Jesus is telling us that he is the Messiah of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He has performed all of these miracles. He claims the authority to forgive sins. If he really is God, he can't be unclean like this. He can't go to this unclean house. He can't. Be involved in sharing a meal, the most intimate of social customs imaginable in that day. Because it somehow means he is approving, he is accepting of the unclean. But even more, doesn't this make him unclean? There's some judginess of the Pharisees that we can reject, but in the heart of their question, there's a legitimate question. Can God's Messiah... The savior of sinners, the one who is going to take away our guilt and our shame, can he do that if he himself is made unclean and filthy? Isn't that disqualifying from the very role he has said he has come to fulfill? Pharisees hit on something. Jesus answers them beginning in verse 12 in sort of an interesting way. He, he answers them with three different contrasts or three different comparisons. 
Sort of metaphors, sort of scripture quotes, a couple of different uh, answers in those three verses. Let's take them each in turn. The first answer, the first comparison is in between the healthy and the sick. Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is an obvious statement. That who needs a doctor? Not healthy people, but sick people. So why then are the Pharisees so surprised that the physician, the doctor, is around the sick people? It would be as if you went to see your doctor tomorrow morning and you got in to see him and you said, Doctor, why is your waiting room full of sick people? What are they doing here? It makes no sense, right? Because who does Jesus claim to be? He is the physician, the only physician that sick people need. And the sickness here is the sickness that every physical sickness points to, a deeper spiritual infection of sin. And that infection that has taken over every part of our lives, that we cannot escape, that we cannot cleanse ourselves, that we cannot deny away, we are marred by the effects of the fall, both which we have inherited from our sinful parents and that which we have committed ourselves in innumerable sins in thought, word, and deed throughout our lives. There is a physician, a doctor of the soul that every sick person needs. And Jesus says it's him. What a claim. What a claim that he can heal the very sin sickness that ails you. He hasn't come for the healthy. He's come for the sick. And we're going to get to this in just a second, but here's the secret. Nobody's healthy, right? You think you're, you're, you're either sick and you know you're sick or you're sick, and, but you think you're healthy. Those are the two categories, right? Everybody's sick. Some people know it, some people don't. Some of you know it, and some of you don't. Jesus has come for the sick. Secondly, the second contrast, verse 13, go and learn what this means. That's our preface to the scripture quote. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Our second quote is between sacrifice and mercy. Now, this seems confusing, right? Turn with me. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Hosea. This is where our scripture comes from. If you're using the Pew Bible, page uh, 754, the book of Hosea, the prophet of God, who's come to speak against a sinful, rebellious, adulterous people. The prophet calls those people back from a life of sin to a faithful life of serving God. And here's what's happened in chapter 6. It sounds like and it looks like to the untrained eye that these rebellious people have finally come back. They've changed their ways. They've given up their rebellion against God. They're ready to believe, repent, and serve him. Picking up verse 6. Come, I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will build, bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. 
His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Wow. That's a pretty good confession of sin, isn't it? They're ready to go. They're ready to return to God. Verse 4 is God's response. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For, here's our quote. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. The second part that's not quoted by Jesus in Matthew explains the first part. What is the sacrifice? It is a burnt offering. It's something external that we do. And you see the repentance is empty. It looks good on the outside. Has all the external trappings of following God. But on the inside, there is no steadfast love. And God says to his people, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care about your burnt offerings. You are a whitewashed tomb. It's only on the outside. There's nothing on the inside. So take that back to Matthew 9 and Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. What is he saying to them by quoting Hosea 6? Which you know they know. He is rebuking their empty faith. He is rebuking their performative repentance. And he says, what is God looking for? Not the external, not the Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. What God is looking for is mercy and steadfast love and internal change of heart and if the pharisees aren't smacked in the face by this they are by the words where jesus tells them go learn what this means that's actually a technical phrase that's used in schooling in training the religious leaders and scribes and pharisees of the day it's essentially saying school's out but y'all got to go back to summer school you didn't get it you failed the end of your test go back to summer school some of y'all have been there that is miserable right They thought they were first in the class. And Jesus says, you're not even close. (laughs) Go back to summer school because you have thought it's all on the outside. You have thought it's all what you say or do or perform or offer or sacrifice. I don't desire any of that. I desire mercy and steadfast love. How offensive must that have been to those who thought they were the valedictorians of the class? Nope. Summer school starts on Monday. (laughs) The final contrast that Jesus gives them is the contrast between the righteous and the sinner. Here he gets to the point. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We can interpret this based on context. By righteous, he means those who believe themselves externally righteous, but are in fact void and empty of any faith of any kind in Jesus. The sinners who Jesus has come to call, are those who know their need and who come to Christ in faith. 
We don't know how that table was filled with Matthew's tax collector and sinner friends. I don't know how they got there. Jesus doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us, except for here. That Jesus has come to call sinners. He has come to offer himself as the saving sacrifice for sinners. Now here's the secret again. No one is righteous. No, not one. This is not a distinction where Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you're okay because you're righteous. I've just come for these ugly, filthy sinners over here. No, we're all sick. We're all sinners. Nothing external can clothe that. And so I think it's fair to ask ourselves a question this morning. How do you see yourself? How do you define yourself? Are you healthy, righteous, good at all the external stuff, but empty inside? Or are you sick? Are you a sinner? And are you clinging only to the mercy of Jesus? You see, the Pharisees saw Jesus eat with sinners and they said, I think he's disqualified. You've disqualified yourself. And Jesus says, no, I've actually done the very thing I was sent to do, to draw sinners to myself. Instead of disqualifying Jesus, eating at this table actually fulfills the very purpose of God. That's why Jesus says, this is why I have come. He has come to call sinners to himself. Apostle Paul says it in 1 Timothy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He has come to call every one of you this morning to trust in him by faith. I don't know who you identify with more in this passage. I don't know if you identify with the Gentile tax collectors unclean. And you don't think the kingdom and the the king's table is really open to you. Because everyone else sitting there looks really good and you can't make your way to that table. You're the very ones Jesus has come to call. And maybe you see yourself the other way. Maybe you have convinced yourself that you go to an institutional church and you put on a coat and tie and you stand and sit and sing and do all the stuff and you just gave a check in the, in the, in the whatever, the thing that comes by. Thank you, the offering plate. Thank you. And so you're good. You do all the outside stuff and so you're good. Jesus pierces all of that external junk. That's actually the filth that we bring to the table. He strips it away. That every one of us would hear his call to repent and believe and follow him. Have you heard that call? You're hearing it this very morning. Whether you are the sick or the healthy, the sinner or the righteous, the merciful, the one making the external sacrifices, lay it down. Repent and believe and come to him. You see, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees with this first question. But there's another question, and it's a shorter answer that Jesus gives us about eating as we follow him. 
Second question that arises in verses 14 to 17 is this. Why do you eat a feast instead of fast? Okay. First question is why do you eat sinners? Second question is why do you eat at all? Shouldn't you be fasting? This is a question that arises not from the Pharisees. This is a question that comes from John's disciples. You see, this isn't just a regular meal. Again, we have to look to Luke to get a couple more details about this meal. Luke tells us Levi, that's Matthew, made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at his table. A great feast. So this isn't just a regular meal. They are feasting with Jesus. And John's disciples say, look, all these Gentiles and sinners and tax collectors are feasting with you The Pharisees don't eat because they're fasting. We're John's disciples. We're not eating either because we're also observing the proper fasts. So they're like looking through the windows at these unworthy, sinful people eating with Jesus. And they're thinking, man, you're not supposed to be eating at all, right? I think this is less accusatory. I think this is a, a genuine question. In the Jewish faith, there were many fast, ritual fasts added onto that list. Where that the Pharisees would often fast twice a week. I think it was Monday and Thursday. You could look it up and correct me on that. So maybe this story takes place on one of those fasting days. And they don't understand why Jesus, who has come to fulfill the law, keep the law, by f- fulfill it by keeping it, why he's not fasting. And his answer to them is a metaphor. And the metaphor is a wedding banquet. What do you do? At a wedding, you rejoice. You celebrate. Weddings today are weekend affairs. In the ancient Near East, they could be a week-long affair. And do you fast or do you feast at a wedding? Well, you obviously feast. Can you imagine fasting at a wedding? Sorry, no reception after this. We're just going to go to a room and not eat anything. I mean, kids, can you imagine going to a birthday party and they don't give you cake and ice cream? What kind of birthday party is that? It's a celebration. We are rejoicing. But here's the question for Jesus. Hold on. What wedding? Who's getting married? Well, I didn't see a bride and a groom in these verses. Well, again, we have to turn back, same place, to Hosea. Hosea 2, if you want to read it later, verses 16 to 20, there We read, God say, I will betroth you to me forever. I will marry you forever. That promise in Hosea looks forward to the promise of the Messiah when God will come and be united with his people under the image of marriage. So Israel, the people of God, is the bride The Messiah is the groom who has come to marry his people. And Jesus says, y'all, we're not fasting, we're feasting. Because the groom is here. Do you hear his audacious claim? He's just said, look, I can heal everybody of everything, (laughs) including sin. Now he says, I'm God. I'm God who has come to redeem and marry my people. It is not time to fast. (laughs) It is time to feast. Jesus tells us a new era has arrived. The Messiah is here and it's time to feast. He gives two other examples, 
parables, we could call them. Uh, the garment parable, that is, if you take an old garment, an old shirt, and you sew on a patch from a new piece of fabric, when you wash it, the new is going to shrink, and it's going to tear the old garment, right? The wineskin, I don't know how many, how many of you have wineskins at home, uh, but a wineskin, of course, is made out of animal skin, uh, and you would put new wine in a new wineskin, so the, as the wine ferments, the skin can sort of stretch and grow with it. Well, an old skin doesn't stretch and grow. It's fixed. It's brittle. To put new wine in there that would ferment and grow would eventually burst the old, brittle wineskin. Both of these parables are speaking of the same wedding idea. And that is that something is so new that the old can't hold it. The old ritual practices of fasting, and that's like an old wineskin, and Jesus is going to blow that apart. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. We've seen that. Matthew is quoting Old Testament prophets all along to show us how Jesus fulfills them, but he goes above and beyond simply fulfilling them, and he overflows them. He exceeds the expectations of all of the promises of the Old Testament. You can't put him in the old, regular Judean pattern, right? Jesus has come to bring something new. And you know who's not eating with him? It's those who are following the old pattern and the old way. Pharisees and John's disciples. They're still stuck in the old patterns. Those patterns were fine as long as they pointed to Jesus, but he's here. You don't need him anymore. In fact, they're holding you back from him. They are old news because the new has come. So what does it look like as we close? What does it look like to be discipled by Jesus at his table? What does it mean to follow the host to his table and feast with him? Two thoughts on this. Who is it that Jesus reveals himself to be? He is the physician. We follow the physician. What does that mean? It means we're forgiven. It means we are. What does the physician do? He heals us of our sin, sick, shame, guilt, condemnation before a holy God. The physical healings throughout chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, they serve to point us to the spiritual healing. That healing is summarized in one word, forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins that is offered in the gospel. And here's what's incredible is that Jesus gets two sinners by calling another sinner to follow him. Did you you catch that? How does Jesus get an audience with a bunch of sinners? Well, he calls one of them and he goes to his house. (laughs) Jesus works through redeemed sinners, every one of us, to get his word, his message, his gospel through him to other sinners. To put it another way around, the people in your life, friends, neighbors, coworkers, family, who don't know Jesus, hear of him as he works through you to call them to himself. And where is one place we know that happens? At your table. This is where Jesus works. 
Where do the sinners meet Jesus? By eating in the house of a redeemed sinner. I invite you to think on that. (laughs) What implications might that have for your own life and witness? The second point of application is that we follow the bridegroom. We follow the physician, so we're forgiven. We follow the bridegroom, so we feast. (laughs) So we feast. There is a debate I'm sure you've had it in your own mind over the place of fasting today. What should a Christian do? Should we fast? If so, when? For how long? What should that fast look like? And on and on. It's a kind of, as we live between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming, are we at a funeral or a wedding, right? Are we feasting or are we fasting? I think Jesus is giving us, in part, the answer, because though he ascends to heaven, he sends us his Holy Spirit. And he is with us through his Spirit, so we don't live in the age of funeral fasting. We live in the age, in the era of wedding feasting. Now, I believe at times it is appropriate for Christians to fast. You have, let me put it this way. You have freedom to fast, okay? As long as you're fasting in a new wineskin kind of way. As long as you're not overcome with the grief and the mourning and the sorrow. Because what marks us, what's not up for debate in the Christian life today, is that we are feasting. Is that our lives are marked by his redemptive work. So they're lives of joy and of celebration and of feast. He is doing something new and wondrous and joyous in us through Christ. And no matter what we are going through in our life that makes it feel like it's more appropriate today to fast. Jesus invites us to his feast. Dear friends, what keeps you from coming to this table? What keeps joy from being a marker in your life. Because your Savior has called you to his table. He welcomes you to his feast table. So how do we follow Jesus? It's not like following a a host in a crowded restaurant through a maze of tables to finally get there. No, we come to him in faith. We believe upon him. We trust him. We cling to our Savior. Hear the promise of the gospel this morning. He spreads a feast, and all are welcome by faith to come and eat. Hear his call, for he has come to call sinners and come to the king's table. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, what, what is it that keeps us from having wedding-like joy today in our faith. Lord, would you show that to us? Would you show us how you may be calling us to walk a difficult path, that you may be leading us by the hand through suffering, that we may even now be under the very shadow of death, but you are with us, your spirit accompanies us, And our soul is fed continually from the riches of your table. 
God, we don't believe that. We struggle to believe that. So strengthen, nurture, and feed us this day that our souls feasting on you would leave this place with praise on our lips and joy in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.